Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Ibrahim Al-Husseini to the show. Ibrahim Al-Husseini is an award-winning serial entrepreneur turned tech investor. He made his fortune in fiber optics and rolled it into clean tech in the early 2000s after witnessing the acceleration of plastic pollution in our seas and oceans. He is the founder of FullCycle, a growth equity fund accelerating the deployment of climate-critical technology worldwide. He's an early investor in Tesla, Uber, Beyond Meats, and Zoom, as well as Neobank Aspiration, Clean Choice Energy, and Devoted Health. He is a frequent contributor on CNBC, Bloomberg, and Yahoo Finance, and a passionate advocate for immigrants and sound environmental policies. Ibrahim, how are you doing today? I'm well, Raj. Thanks for having me. How are you? Ibrahim, I'm doing very well and very excited to speak with you. Thank you, Ibrahim, so where are you currently located? I'm in Los Angeles, Santa Monica at the moment. That's where our offices are. I'm actually showing up to the office in, in a socially distant manner with my coworkers. <laughs> are you vaccinated? I had COVID in January, so I still have the antibodies. So I'm going to leave this, you know, I'm going to leave the lines as flexible as possible for people who don't have the antibodies. And then I'll jump in those lines as, you know, as my antibodies wane in the next six months. And if you don't mind sharing, how was your experience with COVID? It was mild. Thankfully, it was mild. I locked myself in a hotel room, watched Star Trek, and ordered a lot of room service and gained a bunch of weight. <laughs> so have you lost the weight? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I, I tried keto for a while and failed. And now I'm, you know, doing gym and trying to eat salads. I'm doing the things, you know, the, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a daily struggle, but I'll take the struggle over most. <laughs> well, good for you. Good for you. So, Ibrahim, I like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Gosh, great question. Um, so this is a question I, I wonder a lot, which is what forms us? Like, how, how do we, you know, turn into the people that we are? And uh, I think it has to do with... Um, you know, I'm sure some part of it is nature, but the, the, which I can't speak to because, you know, I can't dig into my own genome and figure out what's, you know, what makes me me, but I can definitely speak to the nurture part, which is my unique life path. And of course, all of us have a unique life path, but, you know, I get asked the, uh, questions all the time. Why did I choose this line of work, for example, which is, you know, climate change? Why, you know, why do I care about the things that I care about? And I think it has to do with just growing up as the son of refugees in a host country and watching the, you know, the precarious position that my parents found themselves in, uh, having been, you know, Palestinian refugees, having to raise their kids 
in a place um, that was, you know, semi-hospitable um, and allow us to build a new life, but also with the fear and wonder that if, you know, if things changed geopolitically, we'd have nowhere to go. And, you know, that insecurity formed my view of the world and in a, in a positive way, in the sense, you know, like not everything is a curse, right? Everything is the you know, there's a two sides to every coin. So things that are usually a curse can also be a blessing. And how, it, how it's been a blessing for me is just allowed me to be a more sensitive person and a more, more holistic thinker. You know, I don't look at the world uh, in, gosh, in, in just uh, with blinders on. I look at how everything is inextricably connected and how, you know, one butterfly effect in one place in the world can have effects across the board. I mean, we know, we now know this on a global level, right? Like, you know, a, a, an individual coughs halfway across the world at a, 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 at a wet market and the whole world shuts down. So it's, so that's been my experience all the time. How does this piece of injustice affect all of us? How does this piece of environmental irresponsibility affect all of us? You know, how does this economic policy affect all of us? So I, you know, I never kind of, I, I grew up with this um, view of the world mostly informed of because of my upbringing. So that is interesting. And a couple of things you said I want to point out. First, regarding, you know, not every curse is a curse. And I, you know, with the benefit of time, I often look back and think to myself, some of the hardest times that I've had, I now value those experiences because I learned from them and was able to make different choices going forward. Um, the example you gave regarding, you know, the cough of gentlemen across the world, I remember during the 2008-2010 financial crisis, the I think the sentence went something like, you know, when America coughs, the rest of the world catches the flu. Yep. And now it's in reverse almost. So it is, in, it is interesting. Um, one thing I do want to ask you about that I thought you might point out, but I'm going to ask you anyway, um, tell me about the long hair, the Kurt Cobain time and um, how you started your entrepreneurial journey. That's a funny story, actually. The uh, so, you know, because of my upbringing in a in a host country, obviously I was eager to move somewhere and start a life that felt more at home. And the you know pre-Trump, America's image in the world was a very hospitable place, right? A very welcoming place, uh, a place that you know to whatever degree it is imperfect, still is a place that you know looks at everyone based on their ability to contribute compared to their skin color, name, or religion. Uh, obviously, for somebody with my name, 9-11 was a little bit difficult. Um, and then, you know, Trump years made it even more difficult. But um, but anyway, before all of that, you know, you're talking about the early 90s, I was a 17-year-old boy eager to apply for colleges. And I applied to universities in Washington without realizing that there is a Washington state and a Washington DC. And instead of being where a lot of my friends were uh, in DC, I ended up accidentally in Seattle. And that changed the trajectory of my life because it was the grunge scene and Kurt Cobain and growing my hair long uh, and jumping in mosh pits that had me uh, one day start a business, not because I eagerly wanted to start a business. It was because I desperately didn't want to go through the awkward hair growing phase again, because if I had gone back home, I would have had to get a haircut and the rest is history. 
And I guess that's another example, the, the idea of the two Washingtons of a curse that worked out for you. Completely, completely. I mean, I was, and it was, it was jarring, right? Like here I am coming from the Middle East where, you know, it barely rains and it's always sunny and warm to a place that is dreary and wet all the time. And, you know, and I'm like, I don't know anybody. I'm on the, I'm on a, the, the furthest part of the continental United States than I could be from uh, the Middle East and <laughs> trying to keep this mistake uh, from, you know, this mistake from my parents because they were kind enough to help me with my college tuition. And I didn't have the heart to tell them, hey, I did so little research about where I was headed and so eager to come to America that I ended up on the wrong coast. So I just kept it to myself and kept my head down. And it was, you know, I, because of that mistake, like you said, I started a business and that business took off and I started another business and that other business took off. I became a serial entrepreneur. I became an investor and really it changed the trajectory of my life. So yes, you know, the, uh, don't curse, don't curse, uh, situations lest they prove to be a blessing. So before we get to your current organization, just for a moment, take me back to that time when you realized that you had made that mistake. Were you already here then? Were you en route? How, when was that? Funny. It was, it, was in a, it was in a Delta flight in Atlanta where it was supposed to connect between London and this town that I had never heard of that I thought was pronounced Seattle. And that I thought was a college town somewhere around Washington, D.C., because this was pre-internet. So I looked in a National Geographic map that my dad had in the middle of one of his National Geographic magazines, couldn't find it on the map uh, around D.C. and figured it was too small to make the map. But so be it. I'll just see my friends on the weekend or whatever it may be. But, you know, when I connected on that Delta flight in Atlanta and they announced the movie, I thought to myself, huh. Like, how is, how is it that there's enough time between Atlanta and D.C. to play a movie? And I asked the flight attendant, and she told me where we were headed. And, like, I think I was a deer in the headlights from that conversation forward for about three weeks. Wow, it's amazing. It's amazing. What was the movie? I think it was. I don't remember, actually. I don't remember. It would be funny <laughs> if it was Sleepless in Seattle, wouldn't it? I, I was going to say that, but I don't, I don't, I don't, it feels like it could have been, and it might've been, <laughs> but I didn't want to say that, you know, lest it, lest it just be like a, a mental association given the name. But, uh, if the timelines match and I'll look, look, I mean, I guess I can look now and see, could have very well be anyway. Interesting. So let's fast forward. Can you give the audience an overview of full cycle and your role at the organization? You bet. Uh, can I give a little bit of kind of pre-full cycle context for why that whole thing happened? Absolutely. Great. So um, so what happened with me is, so, you know, we talked about being a serial entrepreneur, becoming a general technology investor, starting a family office, you know, doing really well in fiber optics and fiber optic switches and all these, uh, you know, fantastic technologies that kind of underpin the world today. Um, but uh, because I would go home and visit my family, I'd scuba dive in the Red Sea in the same spot time and time again. So I had the displeasure of seeing the degradation and the quality of the marine life over time. And it opened my eyes to something that I didn't realize was happening, which is biospheric collapse. Because most people don't realize that, you know, climate change, this thing that we talk about uh, so frequently today, uh, the symptoms of it were happening underneath the surface of the water way before they showed up 
in the ways that are obvious today, like these big forest fires and the droughts and the uh, floods and all these extreme weather patterns and the the once in a century um, uh, climate, I'm sorry, uh, weather events that seem to happen on a yearly basis now. Before all of that, it was all happening underneath the surface of the ocean. So I got to see my favorite ecosystem completely collapse, go from from vivid to barren full of plastic in about a decade. And this was 2003. So I went back home and hired every single climatologist and uh, and environmentalist that could take my money to educate me about the climate math uh, on, on this closed sphere in the middle of space. And I realized very simply that this is, first of all, that the earth is like a miracle upon miracles in its capacity to contain life and so many beautiful expressions of life. Like that is uh, an extreme rarity in the universe and that we were messing with its life support system uh, by releasing all these greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, and changing the chemical balance of our oceans and our atmosphere. So obviously it didn't make sense to continue to accumulate personal wealth on a cl- uh, on a planet that was dying. That's like, you know, the wanting to be the richest guy in the cemetery seems stupid. Um, so I decided to, but I also wasn't a government and I wasn't an NGO. So I didn't know, I didn't have facility in those domains, but I did have facility in being an entrepreneur and an investor. So I decided to direct my capital from that point forward to clean tech. And I realized over 17 years of investing in clean tech that just investing in the right companies is helpful but given t- climate timelines, they don't actually play enough of a role in accelerating the deployment of climate critical technologies. And that's when the model of full cycle came into being. So can you define the model of full cycle? You bet. So, um, so here's, here's, a, here's a statistic that most people don't realize is, you know, in Los Angeles, if you stop at any traffic light, you're bound to see a Tesla, a Model Y, a Model S, a Model X, a Model 3, some sort of Tesla. So, you know, I'm sure in San Francisco, New York, and other major cities, Berlin, et cetera, that's the same case. But if you really look, the company's 17 and a half years later, you know, and Tesla's on the road make up one third of 1% of all cars on the road, 17 and a half years later. And that's probably the biggest, most obvious uh, climate perceived climate success story out there. In fact, you know the electric vehicles are helpful, but the underpinnings of modern civilization, the things that allow us to do the things that we do, that we take for granted, are actually a much bigger systems like energy systems and water and waste uh, and food systems. And that's where the majority of the discrepancy between emissions that we produce as a civilization as a civilization and what the earth can absorb so and if think about something as simple as a hundred thousand dollar or fifty thousand dollar car taking this long to create a penetration in the market now think about how long it would take to replace all these big systems from their 19th and 20th century uh, technologies to their 21st century counterparts. We're talking about a very, very long time. And these are much more carbon intensive applications. Like um, take something like 550,000 combustion engine cars moving to EVs for it to equal unplugging one coal plant from the energy grid. 
So we need these big systems. And then we need to calculate their rollout against climate timelines, right? Because it's not like we have all the time in the world. We're literally 40 years late to addressing the problem. And something about, you know, climate tech is it doesn't benefit from Moore's law, right? Like these big systems don't double in efficiency every 18 months. You know, the solar was invented in the 50s, commercialized in the 70s, and it had a 15% uh, efficiency back then from converting sunlight into energy. And 50 years later, it's now up to 25%. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a matter of technology coming to save us. Uh, we have to invest a lot into replacing all these old, dirty pieces of uh, of infrastructure into new into their new clean versions. So it just if you look at the math and the timelines, it doesn't work. You you need a new model to accelerate the deployment of climate critical technologies. So that's when I invented this model, and my team rallied around it. And now we have this you know beautiful model that is purpose-built to address climate change from the private sector by first choosing the technologies that are A, market-ready, meaning no early-stage stuff, because like I said, it takes a long time for this these things to get commercialized. And if your house is on fire, you don't go invent firefighting technology, right? You, you accelerate the deployment of buckets and hoses. So, you know, the first thing is to identify the market-ready technologies that are climate-critical and for us, climate critical literally boils down to, you know, the nuance of which molecule it is addressing. Because, you know, uh, even though we hear a lot about CO2 emissions, CO2 is the weakest greenhouse gas. If you look at the other greenhouse gases, some of them are anywhere from 86 times more heat trapping than CO2, like methane, to 13,000 times more heat trapping than CO2, like um, refrigerants. So, you know, so the first thing you have to do is you have to pick the ones that are going to slow down this warming cycle as much as possible by replacing these molecules that are extremely destructive to uh, the Earth's um, cycle and to the Earth's atmosphere and warming cycle. And, you know, and then as you've as you remove these from the equation, we can start focusing more and more of our dollars on the areas that emit CO2. So it's a, you know, so, uh, yeah, so that's what we did. So we created this interesting model that identifies these technologies that are climate critical, that are market ready. And then we invest the majority of the capital aggregated in our growth equity fund in accelerating the deployment of their technology worldwide. So they have this dedicated funding vehicle that pretty much turns them into a franchise where we can just stamp them out, like as if we're their master franchisee and our our, our market for that uh, franchisee uh, agreement is planet Earth. And then we get to stamp them out as fast as possible. And I'm super proud of that model because it, like, I get to know as an entrepreneur and of course, as an entrepreneur and an investor, our North star is always efficacy, right? So I get to know that I'm not just doing something that feels good. I get to do something that is good, that actually is going to create real results in the real world, as opposed to make me feel like I'm creating real results in the real world. And those are two distinctive things. They really are. And 
Can you give an example of a market-ready technology that you've invested in? Sure. Um, I mean, so, so far we've identified three and every single one of them has a minimum of one gigaton or more of climate abatement capacity. And the discrepancy between what modern civilization produces and what the earth can absorb is a, is 51 or so gigatons per year. So every single one of these technologies can abate a minimum of one. We found some that can abate up to four, sometimes five. And one I'm going to mention to you is super interesting because 10 years ago, waste wasn't even part of the climate conversation, just to give you an idea of how quickly the space is evolving. In 2019, NASA flew a satellite over California to, to identify uh, methane leaks in the natural gas pipeline infrastructure, and they found three and fixed them. But one of the things that really shocked them was they found that 41% of the fugitive methane coming from our state was coming from landfills. So, and remember I mentioned earlier, methane is 86 times more heat trapping than CO2 in the first 20 years of the molecule's existence. And, you know, that was extremely shocking because in the developed world, uh, waste is usually put in what's called sanitary sealed landfills. But that quote unquote sealed uh, technology is obviously breaking down and all of that methane is seeping in our atmosphere which is a massive problem, especially if you look at it globally, because 70% of the world doesn't even have sealed sanitary landfills. They have big open pits that they dump waste in, and it just breaks down into methane and goes up into the atmosphere or breaks down into leachate, which is a toxic sludge that goes into our groundwater. So we found a technology that can take you know, omnivorous waste without having to clean it and turn it into value whether that value is energy, whether that value is uh, renewable natural gas, whether that value, which we're most focused on, is the building blocks of materials. So it actually is the closest technology we have found for circularity. Because we hear a lot about the circular economy, which is what we need to get to, which mimics nature, right? Because nature doesn't have waste. The waste from one system is the food of the next system. Um, so this technology allows us to take, you know, banana peels mixed with paper, mixed with plastic, mixed with agricultural waste, and without having to clean it, which costs money and time, uh, turns it into building blocks of new material in a perpetual closed loop cycle and does it at economics that work not just for rich cities like Berlin and San Francisco, it can do it for Jakarta and Kinshasa, and uh, gosh, Cairo, and um, Mexico, and any economy in the world. So that, of course, drives more capital to it and has the potentiality of transforming our relationship to our waste. So that technology is a Dutch technology developed at the energy center of the Netherlands and commercialized through an American company called Sonova Technologies, S-Y-N-O- V-A-T-E-C-H dot com. Hearing you speak, listening to you speak, reminds me of a conversation I had yesterday. You mentioned methane specifically. I was talking to a CEO of a company whose company um, actually helps infrastructure um, companies ensure that, and it sounds, and I was joking with him, I said, you know, it sounds really boring on the surface, but it's super interesting to ensure that flanges in pipelines are sealed correctly to prevent methane leaks. 
I mean, God bless this guy. And, and, and by the way, this is not, um, like a, a small thing that they're doing. In fact, for, for those who are, who read up on the American jobs act and they know that, you know, part of the trans transition of a lot of people who are going to lose out from the oil and gas industry is massive employment opportunities in sealing all of these wells all over the United States. And there's hundreds of thousands, I've read millions of them that have been abandoned and are just leaking methane into the atmosphere. So that those jobs are going to be resilient for decades to come, just sealing all those, um, you know, like, I don't know, leaking land, uh, sorry, leaking, um, natural gas and fracked mines all over America. I think the last number I heard was about 3 million wells abandoned. Yeah, I read the same, but I just like can't believe we've <laughs> there's that many I of know. them. That's insane. They, they just walk away from them. I can't believe it. I mean, you know, hold other conversation around externalities, but I mean, it's just hard to believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate, you know, like sometimes there's so much noise in politics, right? Like, you know, the these sides just say things because, you know, media picks them up and regurgitates it and, you know, half their audience just parrots it around all over the place and nobody actually does any research. The American Jobs Act is very thoughtful and very effective. And, you know, I really hope, you know, anybody who doubts that just takes the time to go read up on it. And I really was surprised. I mean, usually government does a, an okay job, but this is this is beyond just okay. It's very impressive. You know, it's funny you mentioned the media because I recently read a quote that said something along the lines of, the beginning of TV was the beginning of pseudo-knowledge. Mm. So let's go back to the investing for a minute. Um, Hold on, you reminded, me, you reminded me of something. Sure. I, it may make you laugh, it may not. Um, the I, I read a, a tweet today. I'm, I'm active on Twitter. Uh I'm active-ish on Twitter. Let's, you know, and it said, <laughs> let me read it, let me read it to you. It just made me laugh. Uh, it said, 19 scientists cloned sheep, landed robots on the moon. Scientists today are screaming, for the last time, the earth is round. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, right? Amazing. Amazing. It's amazing so, how much we've regressed. Let's go back to the investing portion for a minute. Okay. Um Retail investors, so, you know, while this show does not give financial advice, it's, you know, easy or easier for funds of a certain size to get involved in this movement. But retail investors that are perhaps reviewing their portfolios or considering or thinking about investing into this sector, you know, what would you say to them? Well, for one thing I would say to them, and there's so many of them are going to be disappointed to hear this and hate me for saying it, but, you know, if you care about the environment, the, the the footprint of mining cryptocurrencies or NFTs is massive. Just reconciling the blockchain for uh, for Bitcoin right now is equivalent to all the emissions coming out of a small country like Argentina, Pakistan, or Sweden. So it's a, until we find a solution to that, you know, it's a little disingenuous to say that this this technology is quote unquote going to change the world for the better if it is literally sucking up all the new renewable energy capacity that we're generating and not allowing us to break, even break into the old dirty capacity that we're trying to replace. So that's one thing. And I'm sorry to be the bearer of this news. I know a lot of young people are very, very bullish, but 
there's a big difference between, you know, making money and making, uh, you know, and ignoring something and then making money while you have full visibility into it. And I think that we're in a time where we can't just decide to look where we want to look and ignore what we want to ignore. That's that's what got us here in the first place. We've been ignoring parts of how we make money for so long that we're literally putting the habitability of the only planet that can house us in jeopardy. So that's one thing I would tell people is, you know, look, look at the whole, not just at what's convenient for you to look at. You know, the other thing I would say is um, the um, don't be... Um, don't don't buy into any um, narrative that says that by doing well, you have to compromise returns. That's just not true. It's not true in my personal portfolio. In fact, you know, green energy companies over the last decade have outperformed uh, the oil and gas industry by four times. You know, back in 2013, the, the biggest company in the world was ExxonMobil. Now it's not even in the top 40 companies. So I know that doesn't answer your question directly because, you know, I don't want to direct anybody to specific companies and specific stocks. But I just want to say that, you know, if you, the, the future of the world is going to be green. So that includes EVs, that includes solar, that includes uh, obviously wind, that includes um, new, all kinds of new technologies, even things like Zoom. I mean, Zoom has done more to help the climate than many other stocks because, we don't have to fly around in jets for meetings anymore to the extent that we used to. And that has a massive uh, carbon footprint that we no longer have to exert as much as we did in the past. So think about these things before you make financial decisions. And on a personal basis, when people ask me what I should do, I always tell them, vote for people who are qualified and knowledgeable, not people who just say things that you want to hear. Look at their background and track record. If they don't have a climate agenda, if they are not, if they don't have a background for actually representing you, this is a representative democracy, you know, in a world that's more and more technology driven, then they really shouldn't be representing you and you should, they should go find another career. So voting makes the biggest difference because governments have to come together to create solutions for climate change. Uh, as well as eat less beef in your diet. I'm not saying you have to go <laughs> vegan or go um, or become a vegetarian, but eating less meat and dairy doesn't have to, don't eat it three times a day for God's sake. It's not even healthy for you to eat it three times a day. If you're used to eating it three times a day, eat twice a day. If you're used to eating it five times a week, cut it back to three times a week. It just, it has such a massive carbon footprint that it would be so helpful if we just slowly step back away from this, you know, heart disease inducing hormone filled, delicious, I admit, you know, uh, piece of uh, piece of our diet so we can cut back on it to help our planet. Well said. And to add to those investors that might be considering reviewing their portfolios or investments, I recently heard of an organization called asyousow.org, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but you can actually go to that site and evaluate your investment portfolios to see how, you know, where the investments are, whether they're in fossil fuels or green tech, clean tech, et cetera. Beautiful. I look, I, I look forward to reading that. And for those of you who are listening, who are big, you know, uh, asset holders or asset allocators, uh, I want to make a point about different asset classes. You know, like I said earlier, venture is too early to actually combat climate change and public equities actually 
very little of that money goes towards building new infrastructure in the ground that we need. It's just like when I buy a public stock, I'm literally buying it from another investor. So we're shuffling paper from each other, which is which is fine. I'd rather the money go from things that you know are represent the past that we don't want and represent the future that we do. But for those of you with the big check writing capacity, private equity and growth equity is where your dollars are going into new infrastructure on the ground that is replacing old dirty infrastructure. So that is the asset class that you need to focus on, assuming that the entities behind it have some real credibility and history into where they're deploying your capital and not just throwing the name sustainability or climate into the name of their new fund because they know you're interested. These we, They need a nuanced, prioritized, strategic approach. And that's, you know, that's my little pitch for private equity and my pitch for full cycle. Well, I appreciate both. I'm going to switch gears here, get to the crux of our conversation. You kind of touched on it before about swimming in the Red Sea and seeing the natural landscape or habitat disappear. But the question I want to get to the bottom of is, you know, the why behind what you do. You mentioned your earlier successes in entrepreneurship. You know, potentially you could have gone a different direction. But what brought you specifically to this? And I appreciate the diving story, but there's got to be more to it. So I guess, I mean, three and going back 360 is like... We are all moved by what we're moved by, right? And for me, like I am moved by those that have, whose voice is compromised or non-existent in the power, you know, like those that don't have a seat at the table, right? Who doesn't have a seat at the table of deciding where humanity goes? You know, the poor and the natural world right? There's 10 million expressions of life on this planet and all of them deserve to live and thrive just like us. We can't just be a virus and just keep hopping from one ecosystem, exploiting all its resources and jumping to the next and exploiting all its resources and jumping to the next. We've run out of hosts to, <laughs> to occupy, you know, as a species. So being a Palestinian refugee with nowhere to go, um, have, I've had, I'm built to, with a little bit, enough of a heartbreak to be able to see through that heartbreak onto those affected by the decisions made by all the power brokers sitting around the table that are dragging everybody else with them, whether it's whether they are positively or negatively affected. And as we know, it's usually negatively affected. The global South exploited, nature exploited, the poor exploited. So it's time to, you know, for us to transition from an exploitive uh, capitalism to a more regenerative, inclusive capitalism. And that's not hard to do if we just invite more voices to the table and to sit around the table. And I'm heartened to see it happening on the social justice uh, end of the spectrum. Now we need to incorporate nature into it as well. Um, and I know that's a kind of a, a weird way to answer your question, but it really is like, I want to represent the whales and the hummingbirds and the world's poor and the trees and the refugees and everybody else who is doesn't get a voice at the table. 
because that's how I grew up. I grew up compromised, insecure, and dragged around by the power structures uh, of the time. And I want to represent uh, those that are being dragged around today and hopefully stop this behavior. To roughly quote Jaws, you're going to need a big table. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> so your journey, it's been circuitous. It's been adventurous. What's the most valuable lesson you've learned about yourself on your journey? <sighs> the most valuable lesson um, is I'm grateful to my parents for raising me, protecting me in such a way my, I have a strong emotional constitution, you know, and that gift that they gave me, I get to use, you know, in the ways that I mentioned on this call, because capacity, emotional, psychological capacity is really a gift. And, you know, it can be born from different circumstances. You know, some people have horrible upbringings and that forces them to have strong constitutions because they had to deal with so much adversity. I had the other, I had a very, have, excuse me, have a very loving, nurturing, protective set of parents that allowed me to become, you know, to whatever degree I am an emotionally healthy human being and use that for the greater good. And, you know, my biggest lesson is to remember how powerful that is and how parenting can play such an important role in turning the world around because it raises generations of healthy human beings who are not living in a scarcity conversation in their head, worrying about, you know, grabbing what the resources and money and, and sex and uh, whatever else they want to grab for their own good at the expense of the whole, because, you know, they grew up in some environment that taught them that or built them up to be that and just come from a more abundant standpoint and a more harmonious uh, standpoint where they understand that there is no individual on a closed sphere in the middle of space. There is no lane specifically for somebody to exploit uh, personally at the expense of the whole. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. There's no lane for economy. There's no la specific lane for health. There's no individual lane for climate. It's all connected. So let's be, let's be really good parents. You know, it reminds me of that um, John Muir quote, something along the lines of when you pull on one thread, you realize it's all connected. Mm. You're good at these quotes. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna subscribe to your Instagram and uh, you know and read, your, read your daily quotes. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. So let's move into the future. It's 2030, magic wand. What does the future hold for Full Cycle? Gosh, so one thing I uh, would want personally is you know for Full Cycle to become such a trusted brand in. Uh, the eco PE space that we have not just a fund two and a fund three for climate, but also a specific fund for water, a specific fund even for early stage per perceivedly intractable problems that we have to address at some point with technology. Uh, we have, you know, uh, public 
equity funds as well that are directing capital in uh, in at that level to the right companies where we're just like this you know multi-asset brand that are all directed towards something that we invented locally called CROI 20, carbon return on investment in the first 20 years, which is something that we use as our guide for picking stocks, technologies, investments, et cetera. And because once you do that, every dollar being put into the space at any asset class towards any problem, whether it's social or environmental, is being used in its most effective um, direction. I don't know. So that's my vision for 2030 is that, you know, the, um, is that we become that trusted known brand. And personally, you know, that the company expands way, way, way beyond myself, such that my daily participation is like unnecessary. And I can step back and maybe just become a board member with a much more expanded board that includes all kinds of different stakeholders and be able to spend, you know, more time with my wife, maybe even think about having children and, you know, kind of like spend a little bit of time, um, and, you know, with, with, the, with those parents that I mentioned as they grow older and enjoy, uh, you know, enjoy them in their twilight years, that would be fantastic. I'd love that. I like the idea of extended shareholders and more inclusivity. It harkens back to the comment you made around, you know, building that table. So you mentioned good parenting. Last question. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Mm. And it could be professional or personal. So 20 years ago, I had a conversation. I, I saw two friends of mine, 21 years ago, actually. I saw two friends of mine have an argument. And there were a couple, and their their version of an argument was one of the more respectful, balanced, healthy conversations I've seen between two people, and that did not resemble what was an argument in my world. And I asked them how, like, how they were so evolved around their their version of communication, and they said they took a course twenty, you know, this, whenever they took it from an organization called Landmark. Um, and that organization um, I ended up signing up for and taking a bunch of courses. And it really kind of planted the seeds of being 100% responsible for the world as it is. And that is such a healthy way to look at things because it's a very empowered way to look at things, right? You know, if we're responsible for the world and it, we're responsible for our life, you know, that gives us power to do something about it. If our relationship to it is that we are just a victim and we are stuck in this, um, in the river moving us wherever it chooses, we cannot stop and, you know, get on solid ground and start pulling people up with us. So, you know, every, every life is different. Everybody has had to carry some sort of burden and some of it is extreme compared to others. Uh, and if we can dig in, no matter how extreme our burden has been and our life path has been, and find some power around, hey, you know what? What happened, happened. I can't go back in time and change it. You know, I can look to the future and do something about it. 
you know, the first thing we need to do is just take responsibility for that piece and for our life so we can start getting kind of into the driver's seat instead of just assuming that we're going to be a perpetual passenger. So I guess that's my piece of advice to everybody is no matter what happened, no matter uh, what is currently going on, if you can find a way to own it, you know, and find your way uh, in and your personal responsibility in it, then you can be in a place of changing it and you can, br- you can, you know, you can have that be on the micro level, your individual life, or as big a macro as you choose to take on. So did you choose vanilla in the landmark forum? Oh, landmark forum. That's right. Chocolate, vanilla, choose. Yes. That's right. Uh, Chocolate, yes. vanilla, choose. And Chocolate, you only get vanilla. Choose. Yeah. I mean, I just, the, the point is I learned to choose, right? You know, just like, hey, you know, is it this or is it that? And Whatever if you're given is, vanilla, that's choose. right. Yeah. Yep, I remember that weekend course I took um, about 20 years ago. I love that. I love that you took that. It was so transformative. It and really was. I did I did the weekend and then I did the follow-up, I think, six or 12-week program after that. Mm. And it was it was life-changing. Gosh, I feel... I feel kinship, my friend. That was a, you know, the, it's, it's a transformative thing. And, and I, I, I hope their, their courses become more accessible for more people. I agree. And I'm going to end on this quote. And um, hopefully I've got the right one here. Anything else you're interested in is not going to happen if you can't breathe the air and drink the water. Don't sit this one out. Do something. You are by accident of fate alive at an absolutely critical moment in the history of our planet. Carl Sagan, which I believe is one of your favorite quotes. So much. What a brilliant human being. If we only listened to him, you know, in the 70s, we would be in a very different place today. Let's let's listen to the, you know, let's listen to our smart people. That would make that would and the ones that care, it really will make a difference for us in, you know, 50 years from now. We'll be in a different place if we listen to the right people. Absolutely. Well, Abraham, this has been a real pleasure, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Raj, it's a pleasure. I look forward to meeting you in person at some point. You're a lovely human. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.